Broadcasting from Sunny Shore City, you're listening to The Underground Radio, bringing you all of the very best Pokemon news and views this side of Twist Mountain. For today's broadcast, we'll be highlighting some of the latest Pokemon news, honoring the true Pokemon motherland, and discussing a certain Mon from the moon. So sit back, relax, and give your Radio Rotome what it wants. Welcome to the News Desk. And now we are going to talk about all of the Pokemon news that is fit to print this week. Starting off, we have some new information on Pokemon Plus Nobunaga's ambition. While there's still no word on whether this crossover turn-based strategy RPG will be getting localized outside of Japan, the Land of the Rising Sun will be getting their games on March 17th. And let me just say, I really hope it gets localized outside of Japan. It does sound like a really interesting game. I was looking it over, and I don't know, I'm kind of a fan of turn-based strategy, and I think turn-based strategy plus Pokemon would be pretty epic, I'm not going to lie. Yeah, I really think that the franchise hasn't been stretched to its fullest potential in a lot of respects, and this is kind of a neat, not only a neat crossover between two really big series of games, I mean, Nobunaga's ambition isn't so big over here, but in Japan it's super popular, and I think it would be a hugely missed opportunity for both of these companies if they just let the entire English-speaking market slide on it. Do you think it would be sort of a thing where they would have to, well, I don't know, like you said, uh, very few people over here know about Nobunaga's ambition because it's been unreleased over here, but do you think it would maybe raise the popularity of that franchise if it was released with Pokemon over here, where it's uh, Pokemon is vastly more uh, popular with the gaming community? I definitely think that's a possibility, and I also think that, you know, if they were worried about the game not selling well over here because of the attachment to the Nobunaga series, they could easily sort of omit that from the title, and that would get more copies of it sold off shelves, but the game itself would still be the same, and it, it could really work both ways for them, if that's they would true. do it. That's true, yeah. <laughs> So that's pretty much all we've got on Pokemon plus Nobunaga's ambition. There's other news this week, though. Sam, tell me about more news. Well, there was the uh, Reshiram and Zekrom uh, Wi-Fi event that went on here today, and the new Wi-Fi event will be for North America, Europe, and Australia, and it'll give players a uh, level 100 Reshiram for those playing white and a level 100 Zekrom for those playing black. And the legendary dragon Pokemon will be holding a dragon gem as opposed to the uh, King's Rock or other items that some of the other Wi-Fi event Pokemon have been holding before. And I don't know, I think it's kind of a nice way to give the legendary Pokemon to the players over here because, I don't know, in the gameplay, the main storyline of the game, you got the Reshiram in white and black and you got the Zekrom in white, but you never got a chance to sit there and soft reset for one. You kind of had to catch it right before you fought N at the end of the game, and you never had, unless you had the time to sit there and keep soft resetting and going all the way back through the castle over and over and over again, it got really tough to find one of those legendary Pokemon that worked. 
and to try and get both of them to complete the Pokedex, you kind of had to trade with a friend or get someone to part with theirs, and sometimes that ended up in some kind of a, a bitter trade situations. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely agree. I personally had zero time for soft resetting for Zekrom. I, I have a copy of White as my main game, and there was no way that I was going to just keep going back through the castle over and over and over again just to get a decent Zekrom. But I'm super excited because Reshiram, in my opinion, is the superior legendary. See, I don't know. The Reshiram and the Zekrom are both really good. The Zekrom is really nice because he's uh, he's a fighting, uh, well, a physical attack type Pokemon, whereas Reshiram is a, a special attack type Pokemon. Mm-hmm. And they both have their good points and their bad points. I mean, they're the Reshiram has the weakness to ground that uh, a lot of dragon types don't share. Uh, Dialga and Zekrom are the only are the two that would have it, but uh, Zekrom also doesn't have the water type neutrality that Reshiram carries. So Reshiram will be hitting, will be getting hit a lot harder by Pokemon in the Uber's tier that would be carrying things like Hydro Pump, like a Kyogre. A Kyogre in the rain would pretty well shut down a Reshiram. Whereas the Zekrom could only get stronger by abusing attacks like Thunder or Bolt Strike or Fusion or Fusion Bolt, so I don't know. It's it's kind of a tough one if you're going to be using a Pokemon like Reshiram. You've got to make sure that the weather is going in your favor, while Zekrom really doesn't have to worry about weather all that much. It's That's kind true. of a weird. It's kind of a weird balance with those. That's a true point. But, you know, one one way or the other, it's exciting to have this opportunity to easily soft reset for these Pokemon because, you know, for a lot of people who are just casually playing the game, it doesn't really matter what what the Legendary's IVs or anything look like. But for those of us who are super competitive about this sort of thing and we want to build really good Ubers teams on top of all of the other teams we build, having this opportunity to soft reset for a good Reshiram and a good Zekrom is super important. Yeah, it is. It's also really nice to have it if the Pokemon you soft resetted for ended up not being as good as you thought it would be. In my case, I totally tried soft resetting for a Reshiram on black, and while... I did the IV calculation to a, to a small extent. I didn't really focus on which one of its IVs were really high or really low, and I ended up getting a Reshiram with a zero in special attack. Oh, and no. That was kind of a heartbreaking ordeal for me there. But since I have a copy of white and black, I have the opportunity to download the Reshiram for white and soft reset for it, and then have a replacement one that I can actually use in a competitive sense. Because even though even though the Pokemon itself wouldn't be hugely negatively impacted, the one that I have, the one with zero uh, special attack IV, it's still nice to have a little bit more power behind that Reshiram, because it kind of needs it. True story. The last bit of news that we have for you guys today is on a new Dreamworld expansion. 
the Pokemon Dream House expansion to the Dream World will not provide any new Dream World Pokemon, but it includes a trailer for an upcoming Pokemon film. Bringing the event Zekrom and Reshiram we just spoke about to the new expansion will unlock a new Sea Gear skin. Only one skin is unlockable per game, so if you want both, you will need both copies of the games. And this is just kind of a, you know, meh sort of thing. Like, yay, new Sea Gear skins that are requiring a whole lot more effort on my part than just a password. <laughs> yeah, the, I don't know, the 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 films over here, I don't, they have some popularity, I guess. I don't know, the uh, they had a couple of really good ones early on, like the first couple of films and the uh, Latios and Latias one, but I don't know, for... Having an entire Dreamhouse expansion that doesn't add any new Pokemon and you'll be getting a new trailer for a movie in it as opposed to any sort of a extended benefit for the Dreamworld Pokemon or, you know, all you'll be getting in all you'll be getting extra is just another Sea Gear skin, it seems like almost like it's kind of a waste of time almost. Yeah, I that's, that's kind of my opinion on it too. It just it seems like a huge waste of time. <laughs> I want more Dreamworld Pokemon. More Dreamworld Pokemon would be really nice. The they're probably going to wait on any of the fifth gen Dreamworld abilities until yeah. Black and White Two come out. But I don't know. Some of the other Pokemon we see, like all the starters, their Dreamworld abilities haven't been released for breeding purposes yet. Like you can't get a female Venusaur with the Dreamworld ability. Uh, chlorophyll, you can't get a Dreamworld Charizard with the ability Solar Power with a female yet. I mean, they probably could have released some of these additional Pokemon with this new expansion, but I don't know, it seems like a wasted opportunity. I know, and I know so many of us are so eagerly awaiting the release of the Dreamworld starters for breeding purposes, because it's so unfortunate that for so long the starters have been just thrown to the wayside as far as competitive battling is concerned, but now, with their Dreamworld abilities, they can become such strong competitors in the competitive metagame. And I, I want it so badly. I want an unburdened Sceptile with all my heart and soul. That's very true. And the Solar Power Charizard is just 12 shades of amazing, too. It's, yeah. <laughs> but, I don't know, I guess we'll... I don't know, this... I haven't seen the new ski, the new Sea Gear skin yet. Have you? For did they include it in any of the advertisements? No, I, I haven't seen any pictures of what the Sea Gear skins are supposed to look like. And I guess if the skins are super awesome, then that's cool. But I've been using my Pikachu one for so long because I I love the Pikachu one. Now is that the first Pikachu one, or is it the? Uh, it's not the, the world's uh, one. It's just okay. the one. It's not the one where Pikachu's got his crazy hat and skateboard and whatnot. <laughs> it's it's just the one where he's kind of like jumping and being adorable. Okay, yeah, I carry the uh, world's one all the time. I don't know. I've never really felt. I don't. There are some of them that were pretty good, but some of them were kind of. I don't know. Terrible, kind of like the uh, Deerling ones. Sorry, any Deerling fans out there, but. I don't know, I felt like four different ones just for each of the seasons was, I don't know, sort of average. Well, it was so disappointing because they all looked exactly the same, except for Deerling was in the different forms. I mean, it would have been cool if, like, the Deerling was, like, you know, doing something different in all of them, 
but it wasn't. And it's like, I really didn't like the Krogunk one that came out. I mean, who picks Krogunk? I think it was because of the uh, association he had with Brock, maybe, from the anime. I don't know, there is that bit of popularity there with uh, Krogunk providing comic relief. Yeah, but, you know, even so, it, it... it was such an average skin, and it just it made it made me sad. It really did. But you know, hopefully these new skins will be super awesome and yes. will make up for this weird non Dream World Pokemon Dream World expansion. That would be nice. <laughs> and so that kind of rounds out the news for this week. Uh, we are going to be heading into the main topic of our show, which this week happens to be a focus on the Kanto region. So stay tuned. It's main topic time! Woo! <laughs> uh, I, today we're going to be discussing the Kanto region. Uh, it's the real-life comparison to the Kanto region of Japan. It was the setting for the first ever of the Pokemon games. Uh, the, the region in the Pokemon universe shares similarities with the... Uh, uh, real-life Kanto from Japan. Uh, we've got Saffron City and Celadon City representing Tokyo, uh, and we've got Vermilion City representing the uh, main Japanese seaport of Yokohama. It's... I don't know, and a lot of the Pokemon games share similarities with their with other parts of the main islands, except for the Unova region, where it's had more in common, I believe, with New York City than with any of the other regions in Japan. Yeah, and something that makes uh, the Kanto region very unique is that it's the only region in-game that actually shares a name with its real-world counterpart. Kanto, in-game, correlates to Kanto in Japan. And that doesn't really happen with any of the other regions, despite the obvious similarities between the ways that they're set up and the parts of Japan that they're meant to replicate. And you're talking about, like, how... uh, Johto and Kansai are the same general regions of Japan. They have the same sort of, they have the same correlation, but Johto obviously was named differently as opposed to the actual region of Kansai, where... Yeah, yeah, exactly. Where Whereas Kanto is correlating to Kanto. Okay. Uh, one thing that I think should be noted about the differences between Kanto and all the other regions in the Pokemon universe is that Kanto had more of a modern and technological and, I don't know, almost like a more advanced feel than many of the other regions did, especially Johto, when you got to compare them in Heart Gold and Soul Silver. Yeah, the only real place of technological advancement in Johto is Goldenrod City. And everything outside of Goldenrod and Johto is much more rural and sort of earthy than a lot of Kanto is. It's true. Like, the uh, 
the city around the burnt tower where you encounter the three legendary dog Pokemon, it had a lot of very muted uh, colors. It didn't really stand out and be as vibrant as Goldenrod was, and it also had a lot more uh, an almost like traditional Japanese architecture as opposed to the Kanto region where it had more of a Western-style feel to it. Very much so. Um, as far as sort of lore goes, lots of the regions in the Pokemon universe have sort of an overarching lore associated with them, except for Kanto. Um, Kanto is really the only region in the Pokemon games without a Pokemon lore. There's no real additional legends or myths associated with the Pokemon native to that region. It's true. I mean, you had you had uh, five legendary Pokemon in the region. You had the three legendary birds. You had Mewtwo and Mew. But really, there wasn't much of a backstory behind them other than Mew and Mewtwo, where Mew was the original Pokemon that all the other Pokemon came from. And you had Mewtwo, where he was a genetic experiment that was created off of DNA provided by Mew. But other than that, you didn't have any of the uh, correlations like uh, like Ho-Oh and Lugia for Johto, or even Arceus and uh, Giratina, Dialga, and Palkia from Sinnoh. I mean, there just wasn't any sort of a, uh, almost like a mythos behind it that you could associate with the legendaries. Yeah, and the other thing about the legendaries in that region is that there was, you know, there's this very, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? There's a very big sense of how ancient a lot of these Pokemon are in most of the regions. Whereas in, in Kanto, the only ancient Pokemon that you're really working with is Mew. Because Mew too has been around for logistically a very short amount of time. It's true. Because he's an experiment. He's not, you know a Pokemon that's been hiding out in the mountains for millennia. And they did cover that a little in the first Pokemon movie, I think, where oh, it was... I love that movie. It was shown where Mew was had been floating around for, you know, thousands of years, where Mewtwo was more of a maybe two- or three-year-old three old experiment. You didn't really know what kind of time frame you were working with, but it was implied to be rather short. Exactly. Exactly. The climate in the Kanto region is also kind of interesting compared to the other regions. Yeah, it is because even in 4th gen, where you've already had Pokemon games like Sinnoh, where you had the one route that had the perpetual hailstorm, or even in 3rd gen, where you had the uh, Hoenn region, where you had the uh, routes with perpetual sandstorms, you never... Even, you never really see any of that go on in the Kanto region. There's always a very temperate, mild sort of climate that never act, that never changes much over the over the course of the gameplay. Yeah, and that's super interesting because while the Pokedex entries would suggest that the legendary birds would have an effect on the weather in Kanto, there really is no apparent effect on the weather patterns. It's true, and you know, even despite the fact that those three Pokemon are present in the Kanto region, you have all these Pokedex entries saying, 
for example, whenever Zapdos flies through the sky, it creates these gigantic lightning storms, or that uh, Articuno represents the I, creates icy winds or something as it flies by. You never see any of this go on. They only really hide out in places like Mount Silver or the Seafoam Islands or near the electric power station, and they never actually affect any of the weather around Kanto. Unlike the Pokemon in the Unova region that have an intense effect on the weather. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Stupid tornadoes. <laughs> Uh, what what really holds all of the Kanto region together, though, is this overarching theme of color. All of the towns and cities are references to colors. Yes, uh, you've got, like, Viridian City, which is a reference to a specific shade of green, Pewter, which is a shade of gray, Cerulean Blue. Uh, you've got just a huge array of colors that are present, and they've all been given specific names that reference each of those colors, and it's it's actually a really interesting concept that they came up with, rather than try to create different names that were based off of the off of actual towns or cities that were present in the Kanto region, which probably would have been far easier. And I'm not sure if they actually did that in the original Japanese or not, but it probably would have been a little easier. But at the same time, it might have created too close of a tie to the real world for the video game to actually take off. It's, and, you know, I, I understand that, and but it's also kind of interesting because the uh, Pokemon games themselves also tie, well, like we were talking about, the Kanto region is a very obvious reference to the Kanto region in Japan, but there are also a number of Pokemon in first gen that tied the games directly to the real world. Like That's very true. The uh, Polyrath, his uh, Pokedex entry often dictated that one could cross the Atlantic Ocean just by uh, swimming, and or the Pacific Ocean just by swimming. And it's, I don't know, it seems like they've tried to keep it separate in a sort of fantasy sense, but at the same time they like to bring it down to Earth and almost make it uh, something that could theoretically be possible. It's it's highly amusing that they've gone that particular route. There's this weird tightrope balancing act going on where they don't want to be too real and they don't want to be too fake. And sometimes they, they clash in weird ways, like Steelix, but I think Steelix is a conversation for another day. Indeed. <laughs> the only town that's not named for a color in... Uh, the Kanto region, is Pallet Town. And that's actually not entirely true in and of itself because it's a reference to a collection of colors. A palette works like an artist's palette in which all of the colors are laid out in order to be mixed together. It's also interesting that would, they would name the first town Pallet Town because... Obviously, there are so many of these other cities out there that are direct refer references to color, but from where you're starting out, it's almost like you have the potential for every color in that first town as opposed to just uh, as opposed to it just being like Pewter City or Cerulean City or Fuchsia. It's like you're starting out this big journey wherever where 
anything and everything is possible, and you can play it to whatever end you'd like to play it, which is kind of interesting. I I liked the uh, the uh, symbology that they put into this, even in the just the American localization of the games. Yeah, I think it's a really hopeful message. And, you know, for those of us who started playing Red and Blue when they first came out and we were 10, 11, 12, 13 years old, that sort of thing probably passed us by at the time. But looking back, it's really neat to see how, at a subconscious level, this massive opportunity was just given to us and we weren't set on a path that was dictated by any sort of overarching meta plot. It's true. And it was really nice because you also had these 100 and, well, 150 Mew was in a Pokemon that you could actually catch in the wild without resorting to a glitch. But the, mm-hmm. just the 150 Pokemon that you had, you could run around and you could catch them. And with enough time and patience you put into it, you could theoretically make every single one of those Pokemon work out and be able to defeat the Elite Four in regular gameplay. You didn't have to stick to the the six most powerful Pokemon you could find. Oh, absolutely. And you, you brought up something that was super interesting to me that I had never really thought about before in the terms of how color factors in to the Kanto region. Oh, yeah, the the starters. Tell me about the starters. I never thought of this. Oh right, yeah the uh, the three starter Pokemon, uh, the Charizard, the Venusaur, and the Blastoise are all references to the uh, three primary colors in a RGB additive color model: red, blue, and green. And those represent Charizard, Blastoise, and Venusaur respectively. And it was kind of interesting that they would choose to give you one of those three choices of Pokemon in the first town named Pallet Town. I don't know, it has some sort of a weird tie-in that was really interesting to figure out after you find out more about color theory and color models and the RGB system. That was so cool. I'd never thought of that before, and I was just supremely amazed at that. I was it's so cool. <laughs> Pokemon I, is a really cool game. I love Pokemon. So that kind of covers like a basic overview of the Kanto region. And now Sam and I kind of want to talk about um, our most memorable experiences within said region. Yes. The, uh, the Kanto region I first encountered in Pokemon Yellow. I didn't get Pokemon Red or Blue. I don't, it was kind of a thing where I came to the game later on, but the, uh, I don't know, Yellow was a really fun game. I played it over the big TV with Pokemon Stadium. I didn't own a Game Boy. But, uh, yeah, it was a really fun game. The only thing that really caught me off guard was in the game in Sylph Tower, you're able to get the Master Ball, which permits you to catch any wild Pokemon without fail. And I thought wow, this is really amazing. I can save this for, a po- for obviously, Mewtwo at the very end of the game. Mm-hmm. Well, when I first encountered Mewtwo and I got all the way through Cerulean Cave, without saving, by the way, which was incredibly stupid of me, but, you know, <laughs> I, was, I was 13, I didn't know any better. I walked right up to the Mewtwo and I engaged it in battle, tossed the Master Ball, expecting it to catch, but due to a glitch or divine intervention or some weird concept like that, 
the master ball failed. No way. And it was one of those things that just made my jaw drop. And, you know, I, it probably would have occurred to me had I been thinking straight to just shut off the game and restart and just continue on from where I was, even though I'd lose a significant amount of time exploring that cave. But I decided to stick with it, and I kept trying to catch the Pokemon, and I eventually caught it in a regular Pokeball. <laughs> After maybe an hour and a half of just sitting there trying to whittle down its HP while it perpetually destroyed me with its psychic attacks because my poor Pokemon couldn't handle it. Well, it's because psychic in the original games was just broken. <laughs> yes, it was. You, the Mewtwo in that game was broken. You, Anytime you had a Mewtwo, it was just game over. <laughs> I guess for me, it's not quite as horrible as that. But my first experience with the Kanto region was with Pokemon Red. I didn't get to play a whole lot of video games when I was growing up. My mom was sort of against the whole video game thing. Oh, yours too. Yeah, mine too. And I got a Game Boy Pocket for Christmas from my parents one year because I just begged and begged and begged and finally they gave in. And my older sisters bought me Pokemon Red. And this was my first real experience with video games, period. So I had no concept of what saving my game meant. Oh, no. So I started playing my game, and I was super jacked about it. I got my starter, picked Bulbasaur. I always pick Bulbasaur. And I was going through the game. I played, like, three straight hours and then got called away for something. And so I just shut it off. And when I came back... Uh and turned it back on, it was all back at the beginning, and I was like, no, what have I done? That's... I, I, I honestly didn't understand it for quite a while. I couldn't wrap my head around what I was supposed to be doing, because it's not like it says, oh, hey, and, you know, when you'd like to stop, maybe you should save your game. It's true. I can't ever remember those original games telling you to save your progress. It I think doesn't. It just... <laughs> it just assumed that you would know to save your game. So and I didn't. <laughs> it's, it just floors me. I don't even know how many young players that were out there that didn't understand what saving a game was because it was their first system might have gone through. There might have been a hundred other kids who went through the same thing you did, and I feel <laughs> nothing but pity for them. <laughs> so that's my most memorable Kanto experience. Let's let's talk about something happier. I don't want to relive those sad days anymore. It's favorite Kanto Pokemon time. Yes. My favorite Kanto Pokemon are Mew and Raichu. That Raichu, doesn't surprise me. I, I know, right? Raichu is infinitely better than Pikachu in all respects. She's cuter. She's stronger. She's awesome. It's true. They had to give Pikachu an item to make him usable. Stupid light ball. I know, right? <laughs> and as, as far as Mew is concerned, when I started getting into Pokemon, I was into Pokemon before I got the first game, because my younger sister brought home a handful of Pokemon cards that she got off one of her friends at school. And most of them were these promos for the first movie, and in one of them was this itty-bitty little pink kitty-looking Pokemon. And she was adorable, and I fell in love with her before I even knew that she was a legendary. So That's that's amazing. I'm not going to lie. I had 
almost the same experience with the promo cards because my mom actually brought them home to give to my brother and I because she got them for free when she was working at the school. Oh. So, and I didn't get the Mew, but I did get a Pikachu in it, and I don't know, that was okay, I guess. But no, that's really awesome that you were introduced to the Pokemon from the trading card game, and that sort of grew into the video games being the being a huge source of popularity for you. I suppose it was really awesome when you got the event new from the Heart Gold and Soul Silver versions. That was the best day of my life because up until that point I had never obtained a Mew that I was 100% sure was legit and legal. That was my first real Mew. I think I cried a little. <laughs> That's that's really awesome. I I suppose it would be really difficult to determine whether a Mew was legit or not, because the only time they would have released a Mew would have been through maybe like the Pokemon Center from New York City's events that they would have every, like once every two years or something, where they would release one random super rare legendary Pokemon. Yeah, there, there were a few events that had gone on previous to that, but, you know, you, you and I, Sam and I have known each other for ever in a day. And we grew up in a really small town, rural setting. So Pokemon events were something that I didn't get to do growing up. It's I mean, we, we didn't make a special trip to Fargo just so that I could get the legendary Pokemon at Toys R Us. That wasn't oh, going to happen. <laughs> oh, don't lie. They didn't even have those special events at Toys R Us. It was just one of those things where it was a major city thing. And it was sort of like, well, you know, North Dakota, I guess... I we'll guess you pass that up. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I didn't get to do event Pokemon until I got to college, and then by that point in time, it was fourth gen, and you know nobody cared about the original 151 anymore. It was just sort of a non-issue. Then Heart Gold Sil Silver came out, and it was like my heart burst with joy and awesomeness as the Mew came to you over the internet, <laughs> which is really amazing that we have the internet to distribute Pokemon now, so that you don't have to travel out to New York City or Los Angeles to be able to pick up a Pokemon that is super rare, and that you would never, ever be able to get in any other way except by hacking the games, which is antithetical to how you play the game. True story. So those are my favorite Kanto Pokemon. What are yours? Uh, my favorite Pokemon are Dragonair and Butterfree. Uh, Dragonair is kind of... Dragonair was really tough for me to decide between Dratini, Dragonair, and Dragonite, because Dragon-type Pokemon are my favorite kind of Pokemon. I it's think true. <laughs> I think they're really awesome, and I don't know, it's just one of those things where I had to decide, and Dragonair won it out, because Dratini is cute, and... Dragonite, to a huge extent, is adorable, but Dragonair is the one that looks the most regal, and she was really, really difficult to catch in first gen, because you had the Safari Zone to be able to catch a Dragonair, and that was pretty much your only source of being able to capture a Pokémon that could evolve into Dragonite, which was the only Dragon-type Pokémon in first gen. 
So it was kind of one of those things where you had to, unless you got really lucky, you kind of had to spend hours in the safari zone throwing rocks and bait to try and catch this thing. And I don't know, It's it might just be because of the super rarity of the Pokemon, but just its appearance and the moveset it can learn and just, I don't know, it's just so amazing. Oh, I completely agree. I think that out of the three original Dragon Pokemon, Dragonair is by far my favorite. She is insanely regal and just beautiful. It's it's so sad because you're right. In in its own way, Dragonite is an adorable Pokemon, but it's just oh, it's just not quite there. <laughs> it has a certain I don't know. It seems like the game programmers wanted that last Pokemon to be adorable so that it would be more attractive to the base audience that they were going for, which was children ages maybe 8 to 13. Yeah. Because that is, that is the Pokemon game's target audience. I'm sorry, but uh, I don't know. It just seemed... <laughs> For all the adult love that we give it. <laughs> yes, I know, right? <laughs> but, you know, it's one of those things where I think it was just that it was that first game. They were re- having to make a decision on whether they were going to make it more kid-friendly or, you know, give it a keep with the regal theme, and I think the being kid-friendly kind of won out, where after a few generations of the games, they got the courage to be able to go out and make Pokemon that looked super amazing, whereas Dragonite just doesn't quite make the cut. He even he even changed color between where he was in Dratini and Dragonair, and then you have Dragonite. I, um, except for the horn you really don't have much of a logical connect between the two. Their faces have sort of a similar shape to them. They've got sort of that rounded nose going on. I suppose. But yeah, other than that, it's there's there's a pretty big disconnect between them. So Dragonair is kind of an, an easy sell for me. Why Butterfree? Butterfree, I adored in the Kanto games, whether they were yellow or fire red and leaf green or hard gold and soul silver because i don't know i know it doesn't have a whole lot of value in competitive play where you've got all these ridiculous pokemon out there like caesar and metagross and salamence where they can just tear it up tear it up and the butterfree can't even stand a chance but in the normal story mode the butterfree had pretty much everything you needed to completely sweep through the Kanto region. I mean, you had uh, a Psybeam for Pewter City. You eventually got up to the point where you could use uh, Sleep Powder and maybe Gust on some of uh, Misty's Pokemon. Uh, It was kind of a rough sell for Lieutenant Surge's gym, but by the time you got to Erica's gym, you could learn Gust, and then you got to Sabrina and Koga, where you could easily use uh, Psybeam, which completely tore up their Pokemon, (laughs) or you could use something like, uh, you could use a Bug-type attack to destroy Sabrina, and then, I don't know, it just had the perfect sort of synergy and the perfect level of cuteness that you really appreciated having it on your team as you walked through Kanto. And, I don't know, it's just, I don't know, it's just an amazing Pokemon in terms of versatility, and... I don't know, it's just one of those Pokemon that I've always had in every generation of the game since. That's awesome. I love when Pokemon sort of obtain that place in our hearts where we carry them with us through 
all of the generations. Like Raichu for me, every time, every generation of Pokemon, I end up with a Raichu, and I always nickname them Ruby. Because my very first Raichu's nickname was Ruby, and so I've just carried that with me. And I love it when other people sort of have that same thing going on. I know, right? It's amazing that people have that deep emotional connection to something which, while it's while logically you know that it's only data, it has that sort of uh, that sort of feel to it that you just can't part with. It's something that you have to have with you. Very, very true. And on that note, I think we will wrap up our discussion on the Kanto region, and we will be moving into Pokemon Spotlight. What kind of Pokemon are you? How do you do the things you do? Share with me your secrets deep inside. What kind of Pokemon are you? Are you loyal through and through? And do you have a heart that's true? What kind of Pokemon are you? This week's Pokemon Spotlight focuses on number 36, Clefable. Clefable is also known as the Fairy Pokemon, and it evolves from Clefairy when holding a Moonstone. It's a very tall, pink, bipedal Pokemon with a vaguely star-shaped body. The Clefables are often known in the anime and, to an extent, the VG lore by being incredibly shy and reclusive, uh, even more so than its pre-evolutionary forms, uh, Clefable and or Clefairy and uh, Cleffa, but they also enjoy strolls under the moon on clear nights and are thought to be some of the rarest Pokemon in the world. One of the most interesting things about Clefable is its extremely acute hearing. In almost all of its Pokedex entries, there is a reference to Clefable being able to hear a pin drop from over a mile away. Despite having wings, the Clefable is not a part flying type, nor can it learn any moves involving wings, but in the anime and some of the manga, it's depicted as being capable of limited flight. Clefable weighs about the same amount as Latias and Girder, just to put that in perspective. Kind really? Of a... a Clefable weighs as much as Latias? Yeah, and Girder. It's, it's kind of a tubby little thing. <laughs> Oh, jeez. <laughs> Clefable is also uh, well-known for its use of the move Metronome, an attack that randomly uses almost any attack known to all the Pokémon in the game. Uh, it's incredibly hilarious to, for me personally to use Metronome on a Clefable and then have it use something like Fury Swipes, which will do absolutely nothing, <laughs> by the way. True story. If you're looking for an in-depth look at video game strategy involving Clefable, you should head over to the Pokedex Project and read me, Natil, my article on this particular lunar Pokemon. If you enjoyed today's broadcast, you can find back episodes of The Underground on iTunes or at our website, theundergroundpodcast.wordpress.com. Please subscribe to the show via the iTunes store or directly through the RSS feed on our website. Feel free to drop us a review on the iTunes store. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, 
send them with the nearest deli bird to our mailbag. Or you can just email us at theundergroundmailbag at gmail.com. So until next time, Poke fans, remember that our secret base is always open to you, if you can find it. podcast is protected under a creative commons attribution non-commercial no derivatives 3.0 unported license and is intended for entertainment and educational purposes only pokemon is a registered trademark of nintendo game freak for kids entertainment and wizards of the coast all original textual audio graphical and video content associated with this podcast are the sole property of Nathiel erickson and samuel ranke